For many, right now feels upside down, and uncertainty is constantly swirling. Normal is this windstorm ever shifting, and it doesn't look like circumstances will calm anytime soon. But what if the change that we need is not our setting, but our sight? Not the external, but the internal. Not our fears, but our focus. First Peter is a letter, a banner, a compass, infusing steel in the spines of people in hardship, anchoring us in the reality that hope lies ahead. Well, oh my goodness. Welcome to Rise Young Adults. Holy moly. I don't know if you guys have noticed, there's like 40 young adults here, but it is good to see you guys. There's a little revival happening. I'm glad you guys are here. You guys excited for our Sunday sermon today? God's Word is amazing, and we are going to get into it. Grab a Bible. Uh, we're going to look at First Peter, and we're going to start in chapter 2 today. Uh, so you made it through. If you've been with us for this series, an entire chapter of the Bible. Good on you. Well done. Well, some of you guys know my story. Others of you guys are new to my story, but um, I grew up not a Christian, okay? Did not grow up in Sunday school. Did not experience the felt board and like the little pictures of Moses and like freeing the people and all this. Like I did not grow up with all that stuff. Um, I grew up with good parents, and, uh, but I did not love the Lord. And so um, I remember meeting Christians and uh, my first experience at like a big Christian event that I actually didn't know was a Christian event was at Wall Street Pizza. Wall Street Pizza. And I remember going there because I got invited by this uh, gal who I went to high school with and she was nice. So I was like, hey, I'll go. And, uh, but all of the people there, um, like I did not know. And I remember sitting in like this uh, booth and experiencing like hanging out with these guys. And I'm an extrovert. So I was like, I'll just sit with the random guys. I don't care. And I was like, what's up? And getting to know them and everything. And uh, we're eating those like garlic rolls they have at Wall Street Pizza. You guys know those things? Those things are so good. And uh, I'm, I'm sitting there eating those. And I had a roll like halfway like up to my mouth when one dude sitting there, these are teenage boys, talking to another guy says to him like, hey man, how is your heart? And I like stop and I'm like, sorry, what? How is your what? And I'm like, is this guy having like surgery soon? And the other guy is like, yeah, my heart, mm, let me, let me just genuflect for a moment. And I'm like, Jenny, what? And they're talking about, like, man, my walk with the Lord is so-and-so, and, like, here's how it's been. And I'm like, what in the weird world am I in right now? These two, like, teenage boys are genuflecting about their souls with one another, eating rolls at Wall Street Pizza. I'm like, I am entering another reality. And I'm sitting there, look at these guys. They have T-shirts on, and their T-shirts say, Jesus is my homeboy. And I'm like, what is going on? And, and here's the moral of that story. As like a non-Christian kid coming in, sitting down, like watching this insanity, is this. The Christians are just really weird. That's the whole sermon. <laughs> there you go. Like Christians are strange. And if you're not a Christian here, I just want to validate that for you. <laughs> I remember later on being a Christian myself and getting a t-shirt from the Christian bookstore that said, uh, my life was saved by a blood donor. <laughs> And it was like all red crossed out. Like Christians are strange. They listen to strange music. They have strange conversations. Christians are just absolutely weird. But here's what I also want you to see. Because Christians are weird, because Christians are strange and almost from another world, people in our city know where to find hope. 
Because it was those boys uh, sitting across from me at Wall Street Pizza that within weeks, I ended up asking the question, like, what is different about these guys? I ended up coming to their youth group, hearing the gospel preached, and giving my life to Jesus. Listen, when we are strange, and we are absolutely strange as Christians, we are a signpost of heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then the world is made to listen to her message, even though it may hate it at first. In 1 Peter, what we're going to find here in chapter 2 is just that, that we are a contrast community, that we look different from this world, and it is because of that difference that people can know just where to find hope. And he's going to say we're different in three ways. The first one is we are a people of a different trajectory. Number two, we are a people of a different identity. And number three, we are a people of different messaging. Let's look at the text, but as we do, um, why don't you join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this morning. God, I thank you uh, that we can open up your word and we can experience a taste of heaven here and now. God, we pray that this morning as um, we engage in this text, that we might be given a vision for what it looks like to have just that kind of strangeness that draws people near to Jesus. God, I pray that we would indeed embrace this strangeness, this alternative nature of being a Christian, an authentic Christian, so that people might lean in and say, what is different about you? Who is it that has made you like this? And the only answer would be Jesus, Jesus. God, we pray over our city, and we pray that um, there would be a revival of sorts that comes out of our difference in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Open your Bibles, First Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 say this. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In this first few verses, what we see is that you and I are a people, if you are a follower of Jesus or if you become a follower of Jesus today, we are a people of a different trajectory. Do you know this? We have a different trajectory over our lives. And what Peter is doing is he is setting forth here in the text two trajectories. And I want you to see this. Look at verse 1. He gives us first this trajectory of what our lives will look like if we are left to our own devices. He says, so put away all malice, all malice, and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. I want to kind of highlight and, and point you to this word malice. This is a significant term. And the reason it is significant is um, because the concept of being malicious uh, actually has some bite to it, doesn't it? Like when we use the word malice today, um, we use it as legal terminology, don't we? Um, what, when something, uh, an event goes from being homicide to being murder, when you inject what? Malice. When there was malicious intent involved. And actually, the Greek term here has that same exact meaning. It means uh, it's the desire to harm. It is intending to cause 
difficulty. It is intending to cause harm. It is intention that this Greek term implies. And so because of this, commentators like R.C. Sproul have uh, said this list here that talks about malice and deceit and envy and all slander and all this stuff. This isn't just an abstract list of like, hey, let's grab these particular vices and bring them up. You know, it's not like uh, Peter's writing to people who specifically are doing these things. His point here is that malice is the kind of fountainhead that all other evil sort of flows from. So hypocrisy, envy, all slander, all of that is like issuing forth. He is describing here what your life looks like if you are just left to your own devices, that you will just live from a place of selfishness. And as a result, all of these kind of other vices and things flow out from it. And what Peter's doing here is he is setting us up for a contrast. So on the one hand, we have our life left to our own devices. That is one trajectory you can embrace. You want to embrace that. Like, hey, man, let's just see what happens. Let's just live for myself. We're going to see all of these things. But on the other side, he says, you can put that away. And then he gives us another trajectory. And what does he say in verse 2? He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. How many of you guys have kids in this house? Parents in this house, okay, God bless all of you. Bless you, bless you. I know what you're going through. We're praying for you. We have a prayer station in the back afterwards. You guys are parents, and I've had three kids of my own, and every single time they're born, I've noticed something. Uh, And, and, you know, if you're a husband uh, and haven't had kids yet, here's just a little word of advice. Like, don't say this, but kids are absolutely ugly when they come out. They're just little demons. They come out and you're like, your wife's like, oh my gosh, she just went through labor. It's just like torture. And then she's like, let me see my baby. Is he beautiful? And you're like, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. It looks like a naked mole rat, you guys. You're like, what is this? And you're just like, yeah, he's precious. And then you're giving her, she's like, oh, he's beautiful. And you're like, he's not beautiful. And they're patting the baby. And then the baby cries. And what the baby cries out for is milk is milk. And what happens over the next like 24 to 48 hours, husbands, is your job is to like somehow keep this baby alive till it finally latches, till it finally begins to drink milk. Because then what happens to that little naked mole rat? They begin to plump out and actually become cute. (laughs) That's, That's the process here. And that's what Peter is saying. That in the same way a newborn infant is born longing for this milk so that that infant begins to what? Begins to grow. Begins to grow. You as the people of God. You as somebody who has tasted that the Lord is good. You need the pure spiritual milk of the word. You actually need to long for and taste the Bible. And by consuming the Bible, you, in his words, you grow up into salvation. And the idea is not that you uh, get saved, that you're, by studying the word and growing more and more as a Christian, then you're good enough and God will save you. But instead, you have been saved and you are beginning to look more and more like the beautiful nature of Jesus. And so Peter here is inviting us into, and he's saying, look, on the one hand, we can have life unto ourselves, or on the other hand, you can have a life that has a totally different trajectory, that instead of wiling out and sort of spiraling into this, you can actually turn around and taste Jesus, 
And you can begin to study God's word. And as a result, your life will go in a completely different, more beautiful direction. And I want you to kind of see this picture. These two illustrations here are like a spiral. We actually use this phrase in our language, don't we? Where you talk about like the downward spiral. You ever use that phrase? And the kind of picture we have in our mind is like, man, like, uh, you know, literally the other day I was going to Safeway and as I like rolled up, there was a guy like yanking like his bike off of his car. And I was like, that guy's like not being nice to his bike. And he's pulling and I pulled up next to him and I was like, what, what is that guy on? Like, what is going on here? And I remember getting out of my car and then the, the manager from Safeway's like, hey bro, is that yours? And the guy's like, yeah, it's mine. He yanks it off and gets on the bike and he stole the bike, right? And you're, you're like, literally this guy's life, is spiraling downward, right? I think Peter here is kind of describing like bike stealing guy, where your life just spirals out of control. And it happens to us, doesn't it? Where our one decision leads to a next. You ask, how do you get there? Well, it's one thing leads to another. You imagine somebody like struggling with finances and making positive financial decisions in their life. Next thing you know, they're mad at their boss because they're not making enough money. Next thing you know, they like get home because they were mad at work and they kick the dog and the wife's like, why did you kick my dog? And then they start fighting, you know? And then he's sleeping by himself and then there's addictions and problems. And next thing you know, the dude's in jail, right? And you're like, this is the downward spiral. And the truth is, as we use this term downward spiral, there's actually an idea here in the text that is something we don't use in our language. Because here's what the text is saying. There is also an upward spiral. There is also an upward spiral where if we would just have God's word enter our lives and you begin to look at the person of Jesus and be transformed by him through the text of the Bible, that you know your life can actually have an upward spiral as well. And all it takes is coming to him. And this is a hopeful and good message because what we're saying here and what Peter is saying is that no matter how badly things are spiraling out of control, there is hope right now for you in Jesus. That is his message to you this morning. And maybe some of you didn't laugh at the like spiraling out of control thing because you're saying, man, that's not that funny because I'm actually struggling with the downward spiral right now. Like you're coming in here weary this morning. This message of Peter is for you. That you can actually, if you taste and see that the Lord is good today, give your life to Jesus and experience the upward spiral instead. And some of you say like, man, I have tried the Bible. You're saying that the spiral upward starts with the pure word, the Bible. Well, here is the deal. Some of us don't like to read the Bible because maybe you just don't like reading. And you're like, is God not going to help me because I just don't like reading? Or I'm not like a disciplined personality? My question for you is, would you just be willing to try it? Would you just be willing to taste God's word? I remember my son, Ollie, uh, when he was probably three or four years old, we hadn't given him ice cream yet because we were like good parents. And uh, we took him to Salt and Straw. And we were like all eating our ice cream. And for whatever reason, Ollie looked at this ice cream like, what is that disgusting substance? 
And we're like, bro, it's ice cream. You got to try it. And it's so crazy to think that like three-year-olds, they don't even know what it tastes like. Like they don't know the goodness of this glory. And uh, we're like, dude, just try it. Just try it. And like, I'm just like becoming like angry at this point. I'm like, buddy, you got to eat the ice cream. He's like, no, no. And I was like, took it and like licked it for him, you know, like put it on his mouth. And then his eyes like open up and he's like, Arr. and he had tasted the glory of salt and straw ice cream, right? And this is what I'm telling you. His eyes open to a whole world of like cotton candy and mint and chocolate and Oreo and glory, amen? And listen, in the same way, if you would just taste God's word, it will open you up to an entire world. I remember being 16 and my youth pastor, Tom, when I was like fresh out of the Holy Spirit's womb, I didn't even know what happened to me in salvation. And he would preach the Bible and I would go up and I'd be like, now explain this part of Christianity and explain that one thing you were describing. And I remember his eyes just lighting up and like, let me tell you these insights. Let me show you the treasures that are here in God's word. And I remember the day when he handed me my NIV leather study Bible with my name on it and how opening that Bible was like opening up an entirely new world. Listen, you are going to see insights that are going to transform you. You are going to experience transformation through encouragement in the gospel, and it all awaits you opening up your Bible. And so Peter here says we have a different trajectory because of God's word. And the other thing Peter is going to tell us now is not only do we have a different trajectory, but we have a different identity. He's going to tell us that we are chosen in the midst of rejection. Look at verse 4. He says, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You know what your heart longs for the most out of anything in this world? Your heart longs to be chosen. Your heart longs to be accepted. Capri, my daughter, recently has... Uh, taken to doing this very strange thing. We'll be eating dinner there as a family. And um, uh, we're like, you know, just taking bites of salad and whatever. And, and out of nowhere, she'll be like, <laughs> and we're like, Capri, are you okay? And everybody turns to her because we like think she's choking to death. And based on the sound that she's making, we're all like, Capri, are you okay? And then she looks at us. She's like, hi, daddy. Hi, mommy. And we're like, what the heck? Are you choking or not? And she's like, hi, guys. We're like, what is wrong? And then five minutes go by, and she, like, does it again. She starts coughing to her death, and you're like, my gosh, do you have COVID? What's wrong? And then she's like, hi, guys. And we're like, what are you doing? And what she is doing is she's being a little princess. 
because she wants all the attention in the world, and for two seconds, we weren't giving it to her. This is the reality, and it speaks to this deep longing that you experience when you're two years old, but we all experience it even today. We all long to be chosen, to matter, to be selected, to be important. Listen, these are Christians here under the threat of persecution. This is a letter that Peter wrote that will circulate um, ancient Rome in many different cities. And he's writing in light of the fact that Christians everywhere as they start churches are experiencing riots as a result. Their neighbors now have tension with them because they have joined this strange cult called Christianity. And now they are feeling the very strange experience that many of you have felt, where as a Christian, you are now a pariah. You are now an outsider. You are now a problem. We used to live in a day when um, if you were a Christian, or maybe this is true in some parts of the country, you would actually be looked at as someone who had morals or values or something like that. Is that true here in the Northwest anymore? Is it? People hear you're a Christian, they're like, man, tell me about like, the hope that you found. No, they look at you and they're like, oh, like you're one of those dangerous people. And that is what they are experiencing here. But he's telling them to root their identity in Jesus. And what does he say? He says to them that Jesus himself was rejected by the world. But man, he was chosen before God. In verse four, it tells us that, he says, as you come to him daily, as you have a relationship with Jesus, And by the way, daily, we should have a relationship with this Jesus in whom we find our identity. He says, you come to him a living stone. This is about Jesus. He's the living stone that was what? Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, right? Verse six, behold, I'm laying a, uh, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. There's our words again. Verse seven, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Here's his point. He is using this illustration that Jesus is both a stumbling stone and the cornerstone. And here's the idea, right? A stumbling stone, these are, um, this is the ancient world. You have lots of builders building sites, building structures. And he's saying this, this stone is like a stone that the builders are looking at. Um, and they're saying, this stone is worthless. So we're just going to chuck it over here. And the best they do with it is they accidentally stumble over it. And the metaphor is those who reject Jesus, they just stumble over Jesus. They hear the claims of Jesus and they're like, that's nonsense. They see the church of Jesus and they're like, you're dangerous. They don't understand what they have. Because in the sight of God, he says, yes, he's a stumbling stone for the world. But guess what? In God's sight, he is the cornerstone. This very stone that they said is worthless, God takes that stone, Jesus, and he builds something precious out of it. Jesus is the most precious, most chosen, most worthy one who has ever lived. And he roots our identity in this Jesus with another metaphor, doesn't he? He says, look, he's the stumbling stone, but he is actually the cornerstone. And in the same way, church, when you feel rejected by this world, when you experience the need for belonging, he says, you're not going to find it out there because like Jesus, you will be rejected. But it doesn't matter because ultimately in Jesus, you are chosen by God. Verse five, he says, you, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. What is this metaphor he's using? 
Well, if we just look at the text, he's saying, look, you are like the temple. And what was the temple in the Old Testament? The Old Testament temple was this sacred space where heaven and earth in only this one space overlapped, where God's presence itself was tangibly felt. This was the one place on earth that you could experience God. This was the most special, most sacred, holiest place on earth. And here Peter says, you know that special temple that we have known about as people of God forever? He says, look, now as the church, you are that temple. And you are special and chosen and selected like that before God. That's what he's saying. And so regardless of what this world does with you, he's saying God has chosen you. And then he uses this second metaphor. He says, you are a holy priesthood. Well, who are those guys? The priests were a special class of leaders in the Old Testament who were chosen to work the temple and bring sacrifices before God. So he says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are selected. Do you guys understand the power of that? Do you understand the power of that? Even right now, as in Afghanistan, Taliban are going from door to door, knocking on the doors of people and asking for their phones to see if they would have a Bible app on there so that they might persecute them. That's going on right now in the world. And when that's happening, the world sees that these Christians are worthless, but God looks at them and says, no, they're chosen and they are precious. This is good news. This is good news even for those of us who feel the cultural tension of this. You know, um, not too long ago, I was working for Black Rock Coffee Bar, and uh, I was helping kind of distribute the beans for that company. I remember I had a pretty good relationship with the other guys that were working there, and we're having a good time. Until one day, at like 7 in the morning, we're all kind of kicking it, having coffee, and getting ready to like do these shipments. And I remember them asking like, wait a second, so you're like a pastor or something? And I was like... Yeah, kind of. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> you know, like, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, like, so you're like a Christian. I was like, yeah. And they're like, hey, we have questions about Christianity. I was like, what are your questions? You know? And sure enough, they start asking the really direct stuff. Like, hey, what do you guys think about homosexuality? What do you guys believe about that? And I remember in this moment, I'm going like, well, we believe in Jesus and the love of Jesus. <laughs> And I'm like, that's the main thing. And then there are, yeah, we want to live differently and all this stuff. And I'm trying to like couch it in all of these like helpful gospel terms so that they'll like leave me alone. And they're like, no, no, no. Like, what does the Bible say? Is it a sin? Is it not? All this stuff. And I remember like being like, dang, they're not going to let me get out of this. And I started explaining like, well, man, the scriptures do teach it as a sin, but we're all sinners. And we actually need the grace of Jesus and the healing of Jesus. But if I thought I was, like, making it easy and more palatable for them to swallow, like, I was not. <laughs> because even the idea that people are sinners was an offense in that setting. And ever since that point, we were, like, getting along really, really great. But now that I was the pastor and the bigot and the, like, pariah, all of a sudden, like, all these relationships started to have enormous tension. And it kind of sucked working there, to be perfectly honest. Listen. You can try to squirm out of it all you want, Christian. But the truth is the world will reject you. And you don't have to be a jerk about things. You don't have to go out of your way to try to explain things that are unnecessarily offensive. Like, that's not who we are as the church. But mark my words, it's coming for you. Happy Sunday. <laughs> right? Like, you're going to be disliked. 
And no matter how like, much you try to water down the gospel, water down the Bible, water down the truth of God, you will be disliked. But if you are in Jesus, despite a world of rejection, you need to know this, you are chosen. And so take the world, but give me Jesus. Take all this world, but give me Jesus, because our identity is in him. And what are you chosen for? Some of you hear this language, chosen, and you're like, man, I feel a little uncomfortable with that language. Is that you? Anybody in here, like, even heard these debates that Christians have in-house of, like, so is it Calvinism or is it Arminianism, right? Like, is it, like, that's, like, what, you know, 20-year-olds want to debate, so I just, like, live my life as the young adults pastor talking about this all the time. Uh, And the question is, are we chosen? Are we a chosen people or are we not a chosen people? And here's the reality. If you don't know those terms, Calvinism, Arminianism, maybe don't know them, right? Like, maybe not worth your time because 20-year-olds just fight about them all the time, and so maybe not that helpful. I don't really care what you think about those ideas, but here's what I do care about, that you know that the Bible teaches that you are, in fact, a chosen people. That I will stand on all day long. And what are you chosen for? People feel uncomfortable with this? Well, here's the deal. You're not chosen because you're special, You know that? You're not chosen because you were better than other people. You were not chosen because you had better deeds than other people. In fact, many of us know that we were chosen in spite of us and because of our sin. Amen? Some of us know, like, if it weren't for the choosing hand of God, I for sure would not be here. How many of you can testify that? Well, here's the reality. You were chosen to carry Jesus' message. He says your chosen priesthood. What is a priest? It's somebody who represents God to man. It's somebody who represents who Jesus is in this world. And so here is what he's about to tell us as we conclude. That you aren't chosen so that you can just feel special. You are chosen because you are chosen for a special assignment. Look at verse 9. He says this, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And you're like, man, look at me, look at me. And he's like, no, not look at you. Here's why I chose you. I chose you for this purpose. What does it say in the text? That you may proclaim, amen? You were chosen not for yourself, You were chosen not to live unto yourself. You were chosen, brother or sister in Christ, to proclaim Jesus. That you may proclaim the excellencies of you. No, of who? Of Jesus. Of Jesus who called you. Now get this. He's like, why would we proclaim Jesus as excellent? How do you taste and see that the Lord is good? How do you know how awesome Jesus is? I love that the text tells us exactly how awesome Jesus is. He says you're going to proclaim his excellencies because he is him who did this, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen? This is what Jesus has done for you. This is what, man, you were in darkness. How many of you know, man, I was in darkness. I was living in sin. I was struggling with depression. I I had struggled with suicide. 
I had struggled with dark thoughts. I was in darkness. I wasn't better than anybody else. I was struggling there. But this is the good news about Jesus. He has brought me into marvelous light. And so he says, look, you can't help but talk about it when you get this. Verse 10, he says, look, remember you guys, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now, two most powerful words in the Bible, but now you have received mercy. Amen? How many guys can testify to that mercy? How many of you tasted it? Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of this flesh. Look, exiles and sojourners are people that are just passing through. This world is not your home. You don't belong here. You're a weirdo. But here's the awesome thing. Because you're so strange, you abstain from the passions of the flesh, from lust and anger and violence and and selfishness and, and all of this stuff. You abstain from that, which wage war against your soul. And he tells us, man, abstain from it. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's what he just said. He just said in that big chunk two things. The first one was what? That we are to preach Jesus with our words. We're to preach Jesus with our words. And in a culture where we are utterly terrified to talk about Jesus, he says what? You're to preach Jesus with your Man, here's a question for you. Are you preaching Jesus with your words, Christian? Do you ever talk about him? Or do you just like to quote that often incorrectly quoted phrase, I just preach always but use words when necessary? which is impossible and like a really dumb phrase, so don't say it. Like what? How can you preach something without your words? He says you must proclaim him. So he says preach the excellencies, not just preach, proclaim. There's something about that word proclaim. We use that often like, man, I'm going to proclaim him. We're to use our words. And secondly, he says we are to preach Jesus with our actions. And so whatever we do, we are to, through word and deed, proclaim the gospel. Let me ask you this question, Christian. Are you eager to share the gospel of Jesus? Like, are you eager to share him? Todd is eager to share him. <laughs> but I fear that, if I'm honest, I'm not always eager to share Jesus. Let me ask you this. When was the last time that someone got baptized here at Rise and there's like 12, 20 people getting in those waters and one of them got baptized because you shared the gospel? When was the last time that somebody came to church because you personally were discipling them? When is the last time? Are you eager to share the gospel? Here's what I'm convinced this is sometimes a hard thing to talk about for us as believers that we don't want to preach. Um, and it's not, it's, we don't just not preach because we're afraid of persecution. I'm convinced that we actually don't preach because we are not captivated by the beauty of the gospel ourselves. 
I used to give this um, litmus test to our student leaders at Rise Youth, and I'd say, hey, look, like, if you want to be a student leader, let me just ask you, like, do you know the gospel? Write the gospel down. And I kid you not, kids that are grown up in church with awesome parents that could totally articulate the Bible or the gospel, I would get their papers back and they'd be like, the gospel is being good so that you go to heaven when you die. I'd be like, I am the worst youth pastor that has ever lived. But the truth is, how many of us as Christians don't actually know or value the gospel? And so as we conclude here, I just want you to see what Peter's saying. Peter is saying that when you actually understand the gospel, when you actually know it, when you are drawn into it, you know what's going to happen through you? Preaching. Because you will not be able to contain the beautiful thing that you have found in Jesus. Amen? This is what happens. Man, I know when I see converts. I know when people who are super far from Jesus meet Jesus here at Rise. And you know how I know them? I know them because within a couple of weeks, their rows starts to fill up every single time. There are some gals here actually at Rise who started coming a number of months ago, and they're like super like cool Portland-looking gals, right? They have like colored hair, different colors every week, and like leather jackets, and way more tatted up than me, and I'm like, whoa, who are these guys? And every single week, I see them at Young Adults, and I see them here on a Sunday, and it's like their row just keeps getting bigger, and keeps getting bigger, and keeps getting bigger. And why is that? Why is that? It's because when someone truly gets the power and the beauty and the majesty that the God of heaven wasn't expecting me to get to him, but he came down to love me in spite of me, even to the point of dying for me while I was still in my sin, when that thing gets you, you can't but talk about it. You can't help but get it out there. I remember being a 16-year-old kid, hearing the gospel, being like, why didn't anybody tell me this? And I'll tell you what, I went back to my high school and I told people about it. I started sharing with all my rascal, rascal like weed-smoking friends. We started a Bible study at the gas station by Gresham High School, and I would take my dad's Astro van and we would load up 20, 25 kids illegally and drive them to youth group on Wednesdays. I should have been arrested. But here's the deal. I met Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, you can't help but tell the whole town about him. You can't help but tell everyone about him. And listen, non-Christians, they're not afraid of you doing this. You realize this? Deep down, they know something's amiss when you don't tell them about it. Penn Jillette, the like magician guy who was on TV a number of years ago, he's like this ardent atheist, wrote a book about it. And they asked him, like, are you bothered when non-Christians or when Christians preach to you? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, no, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me along and keep your religion to yourself, he asked this question, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, 
there is a certain point, he says, where I will tackle you. <laughs> That's awesome. And this is more important than that. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Have you tasted that Jesus has brought us from darkness and into light? That you once had not received mercy, and now you have been ushered in to the merciful hands of God. When you taste this message, I am convinced that you will talk about it. And this world needs a gospel, don't they? Let's finish with this. J. Gresham Machen. What I need, first of all, is not exhortation, but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. We are a people of a different trajectory. We are a people of a different identity, and we are a people with different messaging, and we have better tell the world about our Jesus because they need him. Amen. Father God, I want to pray that as we enter a space culturally in the marketplace of ideas where Christianity is increasingly considered not just weird but interesting but an actual offense that you would raise up a church who isn't offended by you God you would raise up a church that is not offended by the name of Jesus that you would raise a church that is stoked to proclaim the excellencies of him who took us out of darkness and brought us into marvelous light. God, would you stir your church by your gospel? Today I pray that as we sing and as we lift hands and as we give and as we spend time with one another, that you would do a work in us, God, that you would stoke the flames of a new revival that there would be an urgency to share the gospel because of the power of what it is. Lord, we lift your name. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.